Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mountain called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. And that is the word of the Lord. May God add his blessings to the reading, the preaching and the hearing of his word. And all the church says, you may be seated. Perhaps in the reading of this scripture, you can hear echoes of other sermons and other scriptures we have explored in recent times. There is a statement here about times and seasons, and we heard that language used in our sermon text last week. There's also the story of the ascension of Jesus being lifted up and taken away in the clouds. And several months ago, we explored that at the end of the Gospel of Luke. Last year, during ordinary time, that is the time that runs basically from summer into autumn, we walked through the Gospel of Luke. And this year, we're going to take some time to walk through the book of Acts. As you just heard in this reading, Luke picks up uh, where Acts left. I'm, I'm sorry, Acts picks up where Luke left off. With the ascension of Jesus, his rising up and being taken away in the clouds to sit at the right hand of the Father in heaven. In the book of Luke, or in the book of Acts, Luke continues to tell the story of the mission of Jesus Christ in the world and for the world. Only this part of the story that he's going to tell in part two of his correspondence with Theophilus. Jesus is telling the story about the church of Christ on mission in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the church is going to be doing on mission what they saw Jesus do on his mission and in his ministry. And we'll explore that week after week for the next several months. Well, today is Ascension Sunday. If you are keeping score at home and following the Christian calendar, today is Ascension Sunday. And originally, I planned to preach on the Ascension on this day from Acts chapter 1. But along the way, as I read the book of Acts and thought about the book of Acts, my attention was drawn to something else that you find in this story. I justified my shifting gears also by saying, well, I preached on the Ascension just a few months ago, and so surely that's enough to satisfy everyone for now. I wanted to look at something else in the story, and I felt compelled to change along the way. And so this week, I, I found myself thinking more deeply about one little part of this story, and it's highlighted for you, it's italicized for you, in your printout in the worship order. So I want to confess at the outset that I had some 
degree of difficulty writing this sermon. I always have difficulty writing sermons, but this particular week was much harder. I had a harder time writing this sermon because I felt in my heart and in my mind that the Spirit and the Word of God were writing me, correcting my ways, working to right some of my wrongs and redirecting my steps. I want you to notice at the end of, uh, of the section we read that there is a detail in this story that we need to focus on. The scripture says all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. It's that phrase devoting themselves to prayer that I want us to explore this afternoon. So you might be thinking, well, so what? I mean, what's so remarkable about that phrase of all of the things we read? How could that be the thing that stands out? But I want you to consider something and try to put yourself in the shoes of uh, of all of those people who gathered in the upper room for prayer. Think back with me, if you will, about the context, about their life situation. If you take a step back a little bit and bring in what you know about the gospel of Luke and now what you're learning about the book of Acts, you should know that over the last 40 days, at the point of this story, it's only been 40 days since Jesus was crucified and then resurrected. And in that 40 days, the Romans and the Jews were still trying to make sense of the empty tomb of Jesus. So for the past 40 days, they have been doing their dead level best to spread fake news among the community throughout Jerusalem and the surrounding regions. The fake news that said that some of Jesus's disciples somehow got past the Roman guards and stole the body of Jesus. And that's why the tomb was empty. And what this means for this gathering of folks in the upper room is that they are considered to be suspects of a criminal case. At any moment, they could be pulled aside, questioned, evaluated, perhaps even charged with being the ones who stole the body of Jesus. Now, my point in mentioning all of that to you is to say that this is a community of people that find themselves in a precarious situation. They are in between worlds. The man that they love most in the world, who they thought was dead, has come back to life and they spent 40 days with him. He has been teaching them and they've been eating together and sharing life together. And just as they began to get comfortable thinking, perhaps he is going to be with us always. Perhaps he is, in fact, going to restore the kingdom to Israel. Perhaps all that we have heard from the prophets will now come true now that he has conquered death. And then the unthinkable happens. The man they love most in the world, the man that they trusted to deliver them from evil, has flown away into the clouds before their very eyes. He's left them feeling alone in the midst of their enemies. Before he was lifted up, he 
told them to wait for the promised Holy Spirit to come. To be patient and to wait because God had promised to send the Holy Spirit to them. And they needed to wait. And that's what they were doing. So what is their response to all of these things? Their response is to gather together and devote themselves to prayer. I can't tell you how remarkable this is. I can't impress upon you enough just how remarkable this response is. It doesn't take much imagination to see that it could have gone a different way. They could have assessed their situation. They could have seen the enemies mounting around them. They could have known that they were the ones who were ostracized. They could have felt very much alone and thinking we're the only ones in this. It's not worth it. They could have disbanded. They could have disbanded, but instead they gathered together in an upper room and they devoted themselves to prayer. I want to take you back just to a few years ago. Some of you were here, some of you were not. And without getting into the nitty gritty details, I want to remind you of a time when this congregation was hit by a massive storm. At least it felt like a massive storm to those of us who were in the midst of it. And there were a few moments there, and I'm talking days and weeks when we actually thought some of us gathered and thought it's over. It's all lost. We are going down. That's how it felt. We were scrambling around to try to make sense of things. And I was calling folks to get wisdom and counsel and ask for prayers and to seek some kind of help and guidance. And one of my old professors urged me to call a PCA pastor that he knew who was local And so I called this man. We've never met. We're on the phone. I'm supposed to bear my soul to this man. He listened to whatever I wanted to share with him. And then he said, well, I want to share a story with you. And he shared a story with me from a time when he was a Methodist pastor. And he said that the leaders of the church, uh, this is a story from when he was a Methodist pastor. The leaders of the church that he served had spent hours arguing and debating over the best way forward for their congregation. And after all of this debate and argument, a man stood up and said, brothers and sisters, we need to stop and we need to pray about all of this. To which someone in the crowd said, so it's come to this. And this pastor went on to tell me, that's just an old preacher story, but the point holds true. The point holds true that for many Christians, prayer is the last thing we ever do. It's the last thing we ever do. And when we finally do pray, it is because we have exhausted all other options. And not only have we exhausted all other options, we have usually exhausted ourselves in trying to figure out a solution to our problem or to the mess. What I want you to see in the book of Acts is that over and over again, in a very subtle way, not an in-your-face kind of way, but in a very subtle way, Luke highlights for us that prayer was the first response, not the last-ditch response 
of the early church. When you read the book of Acts, you will come across the, the word prayer, some or a variation of it, some 30 plus times. Prayer is mentioned more than baptism is mentioned. Prayer is mentioned more than preaching is mentioned. What did they pray for? What were they doing? We see in Acts 1.14, they just gathered to pray, but not a lot of details are given to us. What were they praying for? What were they praying about? We don't know until we read the rest of the of the book. And then we see that they were praying about anything and everything, whatever came to mind, whatever came to heart, whatever rose up in life. That's what they were praying about. So they pray for leaders. They prayed for each other. They prayed for worship. They prayed for hours. They prayed for in set hours. They prayed for the Holy Spirit. They prayed for healing. They prayed for courage. They prayed for salvation. They prayed for repentance. They prayed for forgiveness. They prayed for life. They prayed for rescue. They prayed for missionaries. They prayed for mission works. They prayed for outreach. They prayed for comfort. They prayed for peace. They they prayed for traveling mercies. They prayed for protection and on and on we could go. If you take some time to read the book of Acts or listen to the book of Acts, this is what you will hear over and over again, that they devoted themselves to prayer and they devoted themselves to prayer in imitation of the Lord Jesus Christ, who was known to them as a man of prayer. As a man who would often go away alone by himself to pray, but a man who also taught his disciples to pray, a man who instructed them to pray, a man who gathered them together for prayer. And so they are practicing what Jesus preached. They are praying together. The word for devoted means that they gave constant attention to prayer, constant attention to prayer. For them, prayer was priority one. It wasn't this casual thing that they might do if they have time. They might do if there's a crisis. They might use it as a 911 call if necessary. No, for them, prayer was something to which they gave constant attention. They were devoted to prayer, but more specifically, they devoted themselves to prayer. They were engaged in this together. Now, I need to confess to you something I think I've probably confessed before, but I'll do it again, that I am very weak at prayer. And to say that I'm weak at prayer is actually an understatement. I am weak at prayer. And I feel weak at prayer because my theology of prayer is so strong But my practice of prayer compared to my theology of prayer is so weak. In other words, I know more about prayer than I do. And that's the case with many other things in my life. But we only have time for one confession this evening. (laughs) My theology of prayer is so much better than my practice of prayer. And, And I'm reminded of this quite often. In fact, I'm reminded of this several times a month. I don't know if you know this, but I am uh, I participate in the Mesquite Ministerial Alliance. And what that means is that at least once a month, 
ministers in Mesquite from all the churches, all the denominations represented here are invited to gather for lunch, gather for prayer. Uh, We do this sometimes with the mayor of Mesquite, who is a devout Christian. He invites us to a breakfast for prayer, the mayor's prayer breakfast. And so we get together frequently uh, for prayer and we really do pray. Initially, I was reluctant to be a part of this group. And here's another confession. I was reluctant to be a part of it because of my own pride. I would sit in these in these meetings and I would listen to men and I would hear what a mess their doctrine and theology was. I would listen to crazy things come out of their mouths. And on the inside, I was like, "Ah!" but on the outside, I was very calm and shaking my head like, hmm. And it troubled me to be there. And so in my heart, I was sitting in judgment on these brothers and sisters. And something changed a few months ago when I went to one of these meetings and a man that that I, I love and admire. I really do. I think he's so messed up in his doctrine. I, I, that's a different story, but that was the backdrop. But I like being around him. I like his energy. I like his attitude. I like that he does some things that I can't possibly do. He's fearless. He's fearless in his engagement of non-Christians in our community. And he came up to me one at, our, at one of our recent gatherings and he put his arms around me from behind. He's squeezing me and shaking me and he's like, I'm so happy to see you, brother. I pray for you every day. Every day. And then he walked off. And I was wrecked. I felt so convicted because I thought I've never prayed for this man one time in the two years that I've known him. I've never prayed for him one time. And it brought home to me the point that my flesh might boast about reformed theology and doctrine and high octane things like that. But this man's Charismatic spirituality is so much better, so much truer than what I was doing. His practice of prayer is better than my theory of prayer is where I'm going with this. And so I'm learning as I interact with these folks, with these brothers and sisters in Christ, that without prayer, we're simply operating In the power of the flesh, which is to say we are operating in utter weakness. But with prayer, we are operating in the power of the Holy Spirit, which means we are operating in total strength. So I'm learning this kind of thing. I'm learning it from guys in our community, and I'm also learning it by revisiting the book of Acts. In his book on the message of Acts, Dennis Johnson gets under our skin a little bit. Got under my skin, at least, when he said, Our meager prayer lives, our anxiety, our dependence on novel techniques in evangelism, our hope in technology to solve spiritual problems, our doubt that loving discipline can restore wandering brothers or sisters to repentance and reconciliation, 
All these testify to our unspoken assumption that God's real action is in the past and the future, but not in the present. We act as though Jesus wound up the church and then flung us out on our own when we say our church can't grow in this neighborhood or what will become of us. In other words, Johnson argues that without prayer, we are functional deists. We believe that God is the source of all things. We believe that God is perhaps even the end goal of all things. But we don't behave as though we believe God is involved at the moment, in the means, in the muck and mire of our life right now. And for this, Johnson goes on to ask, could any of these attitudes survive if we were convinced that God is present and at work among us? The presence of his power would dispel our discouragement. His authority would melt our stubbornness. His terrible purity would banish our temptation to compromise. Surrounded by his peace, we would laugh at our fears. Perhaps I'm not the only one who has ever done this. But I am at least one of those who has done this. Where I have wondered more than a few times. Can our cross-cultural church grow here in Skeetside? I've wondered more than once. Can we make it another year? Can we make it another month? And I know some of you have wondered the same things. But why? One reason we wonder these things is because we see the contradictions. We see our experiences. We see our situation. And we see that all of that contradicts our faith. And we're faced with the decision. Do we trust our experiences in the world? Or do we trust the promises and the power of God? And it's so much easier to trust our experiences. We can put our eyes on it. We can crunch the numbers. We can, we can see and feel and, and experience those things. And yet the promise of God is extended to us in Christ. The Spirit of God dwells with His people. The question is, are we, are we living in God's presence? Are we tapping into uh, these promises? So can we make it? Can we grow? I'm sure that that band of disciples in the upper room wondered that same kind of thing. Think about it. If you're going to depend on your own resources, your own skills, your own uh, your own things, the answer is no, you can't make it. And you don't need to, because that is not the Lord's church. That's just an organization. But if you're going to make it as the Lord's church, what do you need to do? You need to depend on the Holy Spirit and the Word of God and the means of grace. You depend upon each other as Christ works in you by His Spirit. Yeah, that kind of church can make it because that's the Lord's church. 
So imagine this band of disciples in Jerusalem gathered in their upper room. They're in a hostile environment. They don't have a church building. They don't have a secure budget. They don't have any influence in their community. They don't have a totally awesome staff. They don't have sleek programs. They don't have anything. They remind me of a church that I know and pastor. They remind me of us. From one angle, they have nobody and they have nothing. But from another angle, they have everything. Because they have God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They have each other. They have prayer. They have the promise and power of the Holy Spirit at their fingertips, on the end of their lips. You know, in all my years of ministry, in all my years of ministry, which amount to about 25 at this point, I've had lots of conversations in different churches and different uh, conferences and such about what this church really needs. You ever have those conversations? You know what this church really needs? I get that a lot. I've heard a lot of what this church really needs. And sometimes people are absolutely right about what they say. I'm not knocking that. They're right. Sometimes they're totally off. But where I'm going with this this evening is that the thing that I can only count on my hand just a number of times, just a few number of times in all those years is someone saying, you know what this church really needs is more prayer, more face time with God, more time spent on our knees, more time spent together crying out to God for each other, more prayer. That's what we need. I don't think I've ever had anyone come to a church and say, my family and I are looking for a praying community. People look for all kinds of things, but I've never heard anyone say that. And by the way, I wouldn't even say those things. But I should because that's what the Word of God teaches us to look for. Jesus told a parable about people who pray and persist in prayer. And he asked a question at the end of that. When the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? And he's not referring to intellectual assent to a theological set of propositions. In context, he's saying, will the Son of Man find a community of people praying to God Crying out to God, rejoicing that God is there, communion with God, fellowship with Him. Will He find that? Well, He would have found it in Jerusalem on that ascension day in the upper room. No, what we need to do is we need to find a way to recapture this practice of prayer. It might be true that since the Reformation, a couple of things have happened. Initially, we could say that given the emphasis on preaching, that preaching marginalized prayer and prayer was pushed to the side. And then as the church became more contemporary and evangelical and interested in being more like the world, you can say that then prayer, uh, praise music came along and pushed preaching aside, which had already pushed prayer aside. And so now prayer has taken even a farther backseat in this van. But what we need to do is recapture this, recover this practice of prayer 
among ourselves. Now, I want to say this so that you are not completely discouraged, but encouraged. I know that over the last uh, few months, at least, several of us have talked about prayer and the need for prayer. And we've devoted ourselves to prayer from time to time. We're trying to give more effort to prayer, more attention to prayer in our gatherings here on the Lord's Day and in our missional community. We're trying to give more time to prayer. And often during Sunday school hour, we try to encourage more prayer. And so those are good first steps, but more can be done. More can be done. I recognize that prayer does not come to us naturally. It often feels weird. It's a struggle for us to do it. And there are a lot of reasons for that. But we can grow in this. Many of us are like Flannery O'Connor who wrote of her struggle to pray in her journal of prayers when she says, My dear God, I cannot love Thee the way I want to. You are the slim crescent of a moon that I see, and myself is the earth's shadow that keeps me from seeing all the moon. The crescent is very beautiful, and perhaps that is, that is all one like I am, uh, should be, or could see. But what I am afraid of, dear God, is that my self-shadow will grow so large that it blocks the whole moon, and that I will judge myself by the shadow that is nothing." I do not know you, God, because I am in the way. Please help me to push myself aside. Can't anyone teach me to pray? Can't anyone teach me to pray? I've asked that question many times in my own life. And after all these years, I'm still struggling to learn to pray and learn how to pray. I know that one of my biggest failures that one of my biggest failures in life, and I mean this as a husband and as a father and as a pastor, one of my biggest failures is this, is that I have not led my people to pray with nearly as much conviction or consistency as I should have done. I've not practiced it enough. I've not modeled it enough. I've not demonstrated it enough. But with God's help, And with your cooperation, your participation, I hope that we can all remedy that together. I shared a link to a booklet by J.C. Ryle with you in our Facebook group, a booklet called A Call to Prayer. And I want to urge you with all your heart to download and read that booklet and take it to heart. And I got to warn you up front, it's hard hitting. It is hard medicine to take, but it is medicine that we need. Here's just a taste of what it is. He says, to be prayerless is to be without God, without Christ, without grace, without hope, and without heaven. It is to be on the road to hell. Again, that's strong medicine, but we need to choke it down. He's going to encourage you to cultivate a a private prayer life at home, in your own life. But I want to encourage us to cultivate a prayer life together as a church. Notice again that all these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brother. This is a family affair. This is a congregational affair. Several months ago, 
we gathered for presbytery and we have a new moderator in our presbytery. And he did a rather shocking thing at the opening of presbytery. Instead of jumping straight into the business that was at hand and tackling all of the reports and all the details that need to be done, the moderator asked us to gather in groups of two or three and to pray for each other, to pray for the Lord's church, our mission in the world, and those kinds of things. And I can't tell you how moving it was to be in a room with 150 plus men, faces bowed, hands folded, crying out to God for each other, for our families, for our children, for our ministries. And I want to encourage you to do that more and more. I want to encourage you to take time in your family life, take time in your gatherings here, get in a corner, pray for our elders, pray for the needs of this church, pray for the health of our families, pray for our gospel mission in this community. Cry out to God and ask Him for justice to be done. Pray for our brothers and sisters who are immigrants living among us. Pray and cry out to God and seek His face and help in your time of need. The congregation that prayed in Jerusalem in that upper room waited for the Lord to come and renew their strength so they could mount up with wings like eagles and run And not be weary and walk and not grow faint. And I hope and pray the same for us this evening. Let us pray together.